What a great day so far. It is so good to see all of you, each of you here this morning. We have much more planned. We are taking the Lord's Supper after the sermon. So even now begin to, as the scriptures direct us, to examine yourself uh, so that you may take it in a worthy manner. Um, and thank you so much for singing loudly, especially on that last chorus. We'll be talking about praise today, and it is my hope that especially on the final song that his praise would be on our lips. Pray with me, if you would. Father in heaven, you have ordered and ordained that we, your people, would speak and sing your praise. And what an astounding thought that such creatures as us, of the dust, are given the privilege of rendering you such praise that even the angels in glory cannot do. We praise you for your glorious wisdom and might to bring this to pass, even in us and from our hearts. And how astounding more still that in our weakness, in our frailty, inability, and often in our unwillingness to praise you, yet even there, as we struggle to give back to you only a little bit of what you put into us by your Spirit, you are mightily honored. And if you would now pray for us during this time, pray for yourself, pray against distractions, and pray for me that everything that happens in these moments would yield to God's revelation of himself and his word. May your praise be ever on our lips, O God. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who de deserves all our reverence and awe. Amen. As we continue our series on prayer, we come to prayers of praise. We've considered prayer in general from James chapter 4. We've looked at prayers of confession from Psalm 106, prayers of petition from Psalm 107, and now prayers of praise. Next Lord's Day, we will consider prayers of lament or lamentation, uh, a very important and probably the most neglected and underappreciated category of prayer. Next Lord's Day. And then uh, lastly, the, the following Lord's Day, December 25th, also known as Christmas this year, we will look at a very particular, very narrow kind of prayer in praying for the return of our Lord. But for today, prayers of praise. And to investigate this kind of prayer, we will consider Psalm 111. Psalm 111. You can find that in one of the pew Bibles around you. Go ahead and turn there. I will tell you up front as a matter of clarity that underneath this category of praise, praise is the umbrella term, we might also consider prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of rejoicing, prayers of adoration, etc. But I'm lumping them all together into this one category of praise because they all share the same fundamental outline. Further, it is very important to clarify that every, everything I say here in this message could be said about praise generally. Um, 
These reflections apply no matter what context of praise you find yourself, whether you're praying alone, praying with a group of people, singing, or just thinking thoughts that are befitting to the Lord. Of course, my hope in this message is that you would carve out a place in your hearts for prayers of praise, and that we would be uh, eager to do that. And if you think about it, in some sense, all praise is prayer. So anything that I say here about praise can be applied to any context um, that you find yourself praising the Lord. There may be no lower hanging fruit for a preacher to preach than the idea of praise. There are so many things to say about praising the Lord. And they're not only easy to remember, but they preach really well as well. Um, It's important though, I I want to give a caution, that as we speak of prayers of praise and praise generally, we need to be careful. Even without meaning to, the perception can come, the perception can be, that because we ought to always praise the Lord, and we should, that this also means that we ought to always feel like it. And that's not always the case. If you have a modicum of honesty and self-awareness, you know that the Christian life is not always the mountaintop. Indeed, the Christian life feels many times, maybe for some of us more than others, that we are not even able to stand. And so the idea of ascending to the top of the mountain in our hearts to praise the Lord from there seems not only impossible, but as a cruel demand from an all-powerful being to us creatures of the dust. But this is why I've titled the sermon this way, Praise. Praying from and to the heights. A preaching professor at a seminary would reject that title outright because it's clunky. But understand what I'm saying. Praise is a spiritual discipline that of course we can do from the heights. From the mountaintop, if you will. But, dear lowly and sorrow-filled brothers and sisters, praise is what we do to get us there as well. In the same way that the great ships of old, they don't need to do this anymore, they have diesel and other means of propulsion, the great ships of old would get into the old routes of the oceans where they knew the trade winds would blow faithfully and steadily to take them to their desired haven. So for the Christian, if you are in the depths, the doldrums, if you've been knocked down and brought to a place of darkness, praise is what we do to enter those winds, those trade winds from heaven, those faithful, unending divine currents to bring the ship of your very soul to the place you need to go. Praise from the heights is like that glorious view of majesty you get when you hike and you hike and you hike and you finally get the payoff, which is the view, the panoramic view all around. But praise is also like a gondola or a lift chair to get you up there. And it may be painfully slow and maybe you have felt that all your Christian life has been spent at the bottom of the mountain. 
that you can get on that lift chair by beginning to praise Him. So, low-hanging fruit as it is, and as careful as we need to be in speaking about praise, let us dive into the text and hear the summons of our Lord to praise Him. Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. This first verse sets the agenda for the rest of the psalm, so we'll spend a good chunk of time here. Without any qualification or nuance at all, the psalmist opens with a command to all the people of God for all time and for all kinds of people to praise the Lord. This simple imperative, praise the Lord, in many ways summarizes the totality of all Christian ethics and the purposes of God in creation and redemption. This word, praise, elicits ideas of boasting. You can see that connection in the New Testament, especially when you come to the writings of Paul. Paul boasted alone in the cross of Jesus, which means he considered the work of Christ on the cross as the most praiseworthy thing, or perhaps even the only praiseworthy thing about him at all. Do you consider the work of Christ on the cross to be the only thing praiseworthy about yourself? The Lord is to be our boast because He is the only one who is boastworthy, if you will. He alone is to be praised because He is the only one who is praiseworthy. That's the point. This command to praise the Lord has this sense of exclusivity. He doesn't want competitors to your praise. Psalm 148, verse 13, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. So the psalmist moves then from this initial statement, praise the Lord, to commanding, where he commands all the people of God as he is right to do, commands them to praise the Lord. He, he then commands himself. He makes, makes a promise that he will praise the Lord, even if no one else will. And literally, he promises that he will not give half-hearted worship. No mumbling through words instead of singing. No canned or rut-like prayers. He's putting his whole heart into it. What do you put your whole heart into? Have you ever met a person who praised the Lord with their whole heart? God does not want your efforts. He does not want your promises to be a good person. He does not want your plans to do all sorts of cool things for Him. He does not need your help or compliance. Its glory does not depend on you being a good person to a high enough degree with the life and stuff that He's given you. God demands and deserves your praise. It is the only thing worth doing with your whole heart and your whole being. The psalmist also promises to praise Him in the company of the upright in the congregation, 
Why does that matter? Can't we praise the Lord wherever we are? Talking to a gentleman, I've probably mentioned this story before, uh, after we moved here, just trying to strike up conversation, you know, why are you here, why did you move? And it came out that I was came up here to be a pastor and all this stuff, and he said that he had been a part of a church in the past, but he's not really into that church thing anymore because you can find God anywhere. Theologically true. But why does the psalmist promise to praise God in the assembly? Why does it matter if we do it in a group? Why do I got to come to church? My southern accent out there a little bit. We will not do a sermon right now about church attendance. We may at some point. However, clearly the desire to praise the Lord for the psalmist and for us. If we come at it with our whole heart means that it can only be fully satisfied when we do it together with God's people. And there are 10,000 reasons why, but I'll give you one. He deserves it. God is a God of such glory and magnitude that He deserves that His people make the effort to come together for almost no other reason than to render Him praise in being there together singing His praise. Coming to church then with the sole aim of praising Him, especially when you don't want to, and especially when it's hard, is spiritual worship to the highest degree. Because you're saying God's glory with His people matters more than whatever I'm going through. In the same way that you would go to a dear friend's graduation, Not just send them a card. In the same way that you would go to an award ceremony for your spouse, at least, gentlemen, I hope you would. Or the same way that you would go to a 50th or 75th wedding anniversary for a mentor or your parents. You want to go there because they have merited your attention and honor. So gathering together with God's people in the same way, no matter how you feel, and if at all possible, I know sometimes it's not possible, please, you know, we, we, we share in all things, bear one another's burden. That doesn't mean you have to make us all sick. When you're sick, there are times not to be around. But if at all possible, we gather because God deserves it. It's what we do. And it is at least what we should greatly desire and plan for. The psalmist sees, to, sees it as fitting that the Lord would be praised by a room full of people who want to praise Him. And listen, not because David or Asaph has just dropped a new psalm album. And not because Eleazar or Zadok has a great new sermon series on the hottest events going on, labeled after the latest play. But simply because always God deserves the white-hot Wholehearted praise of His people. Has your heart ever approached anything close to this? Do you at least see it and want it? Do you care that this is your salvation's end goal? Does it bother you that sin, any sin, gets in the way? of being able to render to the Lord the glory through His name. 
That's our motivation for holiness, brothers and sisters. So why? Why, dear psalmist, whoever you are, we don't know who wrote this. Why, you nameless poet, pray tell, why would you so audaciously command us across the millennium to praise the Lord? Why will you do so yourself with your whole being, with your whole heart? Why will you do so together with God's people? Because, verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. The works of God factor in majorly into the psalm. He mentions them over and over. And it's not just that he is picking a few things out of, out of a hat, as it were, to focus on in a short psalm. We must understand that praise, glory, is the motive behind all of God's works. It is why he does them. No one has ever seen God. God is an invisible, all-powerful, all-loving spirit. So we, creatures of the dust, how are we to be exposed and know this one whom we are made to praise? God does things to reveal who he is. His power is shown in creation. His majesty is shown in his providential care. His wisdom is shown in the sustaining of all things. His matchless righteousness is shown in His words and in His covenant and to His redemption. The only reason we can know anything about God is that God has chosen to reveal Himself in His works. Creation, speaking, law-giving, Christ-sending, crushing, raising, enthroning, and promising to send again. It is in those works that we see the glory and majesty of God revealed. That is the motive behind a heart that really wants to praise Him. Great are your works. Great are the works of the Lord. Only as we behold, or as the psalmist puts it, study them, study the works of God, may we then even see this God whom we are to praise. The psalmist peers into that deep, bottomless well of God's wisdom and His might that are displayed in all His work and praise wells up in Him. That's how it's supposed to work. One of the hindrances to praise, one of the reasons many of us are not that interested in God at all, let alone having wholehearted praise of him is that we put blinders on with all that the world has to offer us and we cannot see the glory of the works of God. We cover our eyes perhaps with stubborn sinfulness and we refuse to look at the glory of God. We're like the creature Gollum in the Lord of the Rings. We want our precious we want our tasty things to eat and we will not look at the light. There's more of a mirror in that than you know. We will not delight ourselves in the greatness of the works of God. Listen, it is not that theology is hard. It is not that you aren't good at reading. It's not that 
Scripture or writings about Scripture are boring. We don't want to study the great and awesome works of our God because we don't delight in them. And we don't delight in them because, do you know why? They make us look small. Very, very small. We don't like that. So we won't do it. And so our praise grows cold. Verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is His work. And His righteousness endures forever. Not only is His work full of splendor and majesty for all to see, and not only will seeing the splendor of that majesty evoke praise, but in beholding the majestic power of God and His glorious work, we also see His character, His heart. These are not disassociated ideas in the verse. It's not His works over here and His righteousness over here. We see His righteousness as we see Him work and do things. As He has behaved, if we could put it that way, through creation, we see His righteousness displayed as the megacene of His work. It's because of verses like this that Paul can say in Romans, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them in the things that have been made. When you just look up from your screen or your job or your hobby or your social media or your fretting or your worries for just a few moments and consider well the works of God, we can we are still humble enough. See the beauty, not just of His power and His might, but His righteousness. And not only that, we see the unending nature of His righteousness. His righteousness endures forever. It's really there to see. You want to see it? It's there, shining. Blazing bright, do you want to see it? Do you want your heart to be the kind of heart to say such things without it having to be dragged out of you on a Sunday morning? Then look and behold your God. Open your eyes to His works and see in them His undeniable and obvious power, might, holiness, and justice. Verse 4, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. This is such a comforting statement. Because we, I, find my heart is often cold and I do not rightly consider the works of the Lord. And I forget His righteousness. But He Himself ensures that His people will not altogether forget them. He does this in various ways through the ages and the phases of redemptive history, but He always works. He's working round the clock to make sure we do not forget His wondrous works altogether. Praise Him for His steadfast love. This is another reason to come together with the people of God. God has given us one another so that we 
may not forget the wondrous works of God. As we hear our brothers and sisters praise Him, as we see the expressions on their face as they are singing songs with genuineness, and that stirs us up and that reminds us, oh yes, indeed, He is worthy of these praises that we offer. He has done great things and holy is His name. He does all this because of His grace and mercy. Right? You see that right there. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And this is wisdom for us. The end or the goal of mercy and grace isn't just mercy and grace as an end in themselves. It's something greater. The Lord extends mercy and grace even to us in our fickle and tired eyes when we don't want to remember the works of God. He extends His mercy and grace even meeting us where we are to draw our gaze back to Him. That we may see Him, behold Him, and praise Him. But we must do that. We must praise Him. How kind is He that He is not satisfied to sit in heaven letting us suffer the consequences of forgetting His work, of forgetting His faithfulness, of forgetting His promises. How many have we forgotten today? And yet, He causes them to be remembered. Understand how intricate and intimate is His work in your life even now when things come to mind, when you remember the steadfast love of the Lord and that dissuades you from temptation or that motivates you to righteousness. That is God at work. He is reminding you of His works out of His grace and mercy towards you. Great is His love and greatly He is to be praised. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not deal with us according to our cold, half-hearted, lazy praise. No one, this is the beautiful point, no one except the Lord Himself can kindle the fire of praise in our hearts again. That is an encouraging, resting, peace-giving promise that it's up to Him. If He does not come and spark that in our hearts, we will remain cold and forgetful. But He is committed to do so out of His grace and mercy. And we can't even bring the fuel for the fire. He is committed to bring this to pass. Even if you find yourself this morning without a spark, without a smoldering wick of praise, just thinking on this one truth that He promises to come again and stoke the fires of praise in your heart is itself enough to begin to warm and thaw your frozen heart as He tunes your heart to sing His praise. Verse 5. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. I want to say so much showing this deep theological connection between food and the covenant, feasting and salvation. We'll all get to experience it in the taking of the Lord's Supper and our love feast, our, our sanctified potluck, if you will, afterwards. But there's, it would just dominate too much of our time. You know I love this theme. But very quickly, the psalmist sees this as another whole vein of motivation to praise the Lord because He is a promise-keeping, all-providing God. One of the ways to stir your heart to praise Him again is to reacquaint yourself with the stunning promises of God. 
He remembers his covenant forever. He provides food for those who fear him. There are promises in this book that he has made to those who are in Christ, those who are in his covenant, that make the best and brightest theologians stagger with amazement. We're going to come to one of the most mind-blowing one of them uh, in a few weeks when we start our series on Second Peter, that we might partake in the divine nature. What in the world? What kind of being are we dealing with who would make such promises? And he maintains his commitment to bless, to keep covenant with us in spite of us. Because of His steadfast love and His awesome commitment to be known and revered and loved by those who used to hate Him and despise Him. We did not care about Him at all. And some of us, all of us at the most base level, participating in the sin of our first parents, we despised and defied Him. That's what sin is. But his desire to enter into covenant with people like that, to be our provider and sustainer forever. Do we consider the steadfast love of the Lord half as much as we ought, even on a celebration Sunday, to just ponder the extent of his love to do things like this? It is no wonder that true Christian joy is such a distant memory for many of us. And yet it is not a mystery to fix. It's just really difficult. Because you have to stop being transfixed, mesmerized by so many other things. They may be even good things, but they do not deserve your attention like God does. And you're starving your soul by being transfixed on them instead of God. He has made us for Himself and our hearts will find no rest until they rest in Him, says Augustine. To let your mind, your heart, your life be so dominated and occupied with other things, things other than God and His mighty works in revealing Himself, would be like going to the most famous, best five-star restaurant you can imagine in your favorite city with your best friends and to have the best prepared steak right there in front of you or a salad for the rest of you. And instead of participating in that amazing meal with the best of friends and in taking it all in, you've got your earbuds in and you're eating Cheetos that you snuck in. That isn't half as silly as it is for us made in the image of God to be so transfixed on other things and distracted and have the blinders on instead of beholding our God. He has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. We feast upon Him through faith and this is the the table He's prepared and we're out eating Cheetos. This is why we don't have joy. We're starving. Verse 6, 
He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. Again, just far too much to say on this point this morning, but the point here is that God is to be praised because He has blessed us beyond measure. And in ways that even in our wildest imagination, we, we, we could never think that we would receive. Very quickly, the promises made to Abraham were never just about that tiny strip of real estate between the Mediterranean Sea and the desert of Saudi Arabia. No, Abraham knew that the promises were much more all-encompassing and global. Paul says as much in Romans 4 that he would be heir of the world. The promises to those who were in Christ, the offspring of Abraham, is that we will inherit the earth. And not just the dirt, the sky, and the seas, but people from the world over, every tongue, tribe, and nation will be ours, and we will be theirs together as each other's siblings in glory forever. He gives them the inheritance of the nations. The whole world is your inheritance, brothers and sisters. Do you understand the magnitude of the blessings that God has planned from all time, from before all time, to bless you with? Do you understand the joy that He has planned for you? He has planned it for all time to pour out on you together with each other. Do you understand the wonder, the glory of the inheritance that He has bought and paid for with His Son's life to give to you? Praise Him for His steadfast love. But again, our praise grows cold. Not because we doubt that God exists, necessarily. That might be your struggle. And not that we doubt His power, but we don't have enough faith, not yet at least, to believe that all of this is true. It is going to happen, brothers and sisters. Through faith in Christ, it is more sure that all of this will be yours and mine. It is more sure than the rising of the sun tomorrow. We struggle to praise Him because we struggle to believe that He is this good and this kind. But He is. I'm telling you, He is. And we haven't even scratched the surface of seeing His goodness and kindness. Verse 7, The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. Verse 8, They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. There's a shift now in the passage to look at a particular kind of God's works. More narrow than the covenant or the creation or the broad strokes of His eternal plan. The psalmist now focuses on the precepts of the Lord. The commands. 
the law, the moral requirements of God. This is the major theme in the Psalms. And in fact, it is one of the biggest themes in the longest Psalm, Psalm 119. The point is that we can see God's faithfulness, His justice in the revelation of His laws to us. Praise, then, is rooted in some sense in knowing what He requires of you. And in all honesty, that's a struggle. How many of us have read one of the commands of God, especially those that sting and summon us to die to ourselves in ways that we're uncomfortable dying to ourselves in? How many of us read those commands and respond with, Amen, praise the Lord. That's what the psalmist is saying. As God's righteousness is revealed in His commands, as we see them even acknowledging how far we fall short, that is a root of praise. This shows us that we haven't learned the lesson. This is the point. He will ensure that they will be performed with faithfulness and uprightness forever. Because look at it, verse 8. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. Faithfulness implies that these commands of God aren't being kept by Him, but that the people that He has given them to will eventually keep them in faithfulness forever. Only He can do that. This is the secret in preventing the law of God, even the royal law of Christ, from becoming a crushing burden. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have been crushed under the moral demands of God's law? Especially when we fall short. But here's the secret to prevent that from happening. His commands are not something He is trying to extract from you like a drill sergeant or a coach. They are the outline of what He Himself will surely bring to pass in your glorified self. In that light, we can look at His commands and demands with delight. He has not just given these to find fault and condemn and undo us. Rather, they are the blueprints of what He is making us into. It is your destiny and He will surely do it. We can look at His commands even seeing how far we fall short and say, praise Him. All glory be to Christ who brings this to pass even in our rebellious, stubborn hearts. This is what you will be, brothers and sisters. Verse 9. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. You know, preaching is always an audacious act. That a mortal man would stand and dare to clarify or draw out more themes and explain God's words and apply them to God's people. That's the job. But sometimes you come across a passage of Scripture that is so beautifully worded and it's so self-explanatory And it applies itself that there's almost no need to say anything more or even a desire to say anything more, but just to wish that we could all memorize it and to live in light of it. This is one of those verses. 
It's all right there. He sent redemption to His people. He's commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Start to finish. In many ways, the Gospel right there. This is why He's doing it. The only thing I would dare to add then is to ask a question. What needs to happen in your heart to close the gap between what we see taking place in the heart of the psalmist and where you are right now? What would it take? What do you need to do? What, what's stoking the fires? What's stirring one another up to love and to good works needs to happen so that you can say these kinds of things about your God? And for it to be genuine, holy and awesome is His name. And that that would resonate deeply in your heart. You young people, you've got a head start. Make this your aim. That you would be one of the ones that when God sends the Christ, Jesus Himself said, but when the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? May you be one of the ones crying out, holy and awesome is His name. How can we do that? How can we become the kinds of people that say those kinds of things genuinely from the heart? I think it probably has something to do with verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Like a fireworks show, at the very end, everyone waits for those final moments, anticipating all the pyrotechnicians showing off with what they have prepared in the finale. This verse has the same effect, I think. One day I'd love to spend hours just teaching on it, preaching on it. Think of this. The fear of the Lord is the taproot of praise. Just spending your devotion time this week or for the next few weeks, on that one thought that the fear of the Lord is the taproot of praise might be well worth your time. To practice the fear of the Lord, then, means that you train your heart to regard and revere Him as the biggest deal in your life, as the most important reality in every moment. The reason we sin, brothers and sisters, in every case, is that in those moments, God is not a very big deal to you. Whenever you are able to resist temptation on the other side, it is because just like Joseph, the Lord stirs you up to regard Him as a bigger deal than that temptation, whatever your flesh might want. How could I do this wickedness against God? Are you crazy? It is the same way with praise and prayers of praise. You will. You will. There is no way around this. You will praise that which you fear in this sense. Whatever is a really big deal to you, you will be singing and praying its praises. This is why the fear of man is a sin. Because fear of other things produces rivals in your heart to the glory of God. And your, your, your praise is then diversified. 
I mean, maybe some towards God. We're, we're, we're synergists. We bring in other deities. It doesn't look like maybe a little statue or whatever it is, but, but we have these other deities in our heart that we, that we praise and we render worship and rendering worth to because we fear them. We regard them. We regard them as a big, big deal. And God is marginalized. But the Lord's praise endures forever. And this is, in some sense, one of the beginning points of the proper fear of God. I want to close with a few reflections on this. That the praise of the Lord endures forever. The past few years have shown us that things we thought were really stable, things that we thought would almost never change, or never happen, were folly to trust in or to think impossible. We look around at the world and there are many things that seem unchangeable. But if you know your world history, your church history, or if you know anything about real science, then you know the way things are in this world, on this planet, and yes, even in this galaxy, are not as solid or as permanent as they seem. The reason why I say things like more sure than the rising of the sun is because even though God has determined that it will rise as long as He is set, one day it won't rise anymore. That will stop. Loss, decay, frailty, entropy rule this creation because of sin and the curse. But the praise of the Lord, that endures forever. Fast forward as far as you want after billions of trillions of years, if the Lord would let the physical universe continue that long, after all matter has collapsed into supermassive black holes, terrifying. And even fast forward beyond that, beyond the upper limits of our speculation, when science tells us that even those, those supermassive black holes would disseminate and fall apart, become dissolve into nothingness, and then there's that deafening silence of the harrowing dark. Yet even then, then, the Lord, the Lord will be praised. His praise endures forever. It will not end. And at that moment of clarity, in that awe of wonder, that absolute power, His eternal determination and His fixed plan to be praised forever. And glory of glories, His unrelenting grace to bring us even us, into His praise. That is why He must be feared. Who can fathom the majesty of our God? This will go on and on in unending ways, in unending tones, and with unending joy. You will either bow the knee now to the focal point of this praise, the man Jesus Christ, 
or your rejection of all of it and God's proper judgment of that disastrous rebellion will glorify him anyway. There are no other options that exist in the universe. So, why not begin today? Why not today? Why not even every day? When we pray, for example, after the words, Heavenly Father, maybe we could linger for a moment before we pray for everything else that we're right to pray for. We're needy people by design. Maybe we could linger for a few moments on hallowed be Your name and praise Him as we were created to do. This is why the heavenly beings, the cherubim, the seraphim surrounding the throne have almost nothing else to say. What else can we say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I'm going to pray and We'll go if the praise team could go ahead and come up here. This is in fact the song we'll close with. It's maybe not the best song ever written, but it's up there. And after hearing a plea from the scriptures resonating with the words of this psalmist to praise the Lord, maybe everything else in your mind and heart gets completely set aside, and you sing this song like God deserves it. Doesn't matter if you can't sing well what you think might be well, God deserves your joyful noise. Let's lift the roof off, even with all the snow on top. I told the band, it's all right if people come to the point of yelling. And I told Becky, treat those keys like they owe you money. Let, let, us, let us praise the Lord because He deserves it. Holy is His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. You are great and awesome, full of wonder and majesty. And you've brought us in to the inner room to be the ones who worship you in ways that angels can't. We are the redeemed ones, your sons and daughters adopted in Christ. And this is why we exist. Help us do so even now. In Jesus' name, amen.